God, we thank you for this day, and we thank you for a day to celebrate um, fathers. And Lord, I pray that our praises would be that to you, would be a celebration of you as our Father, God. Um, Lord, that you would hear them, and with a Father's heart, that you would accept them, um, that you would sense our presence and our love today, Lord, and that we would sense your presence today. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. I had some nice guitar music. I should have utilized that. Just pulled out the tear jerkers right away, but I didn't. I'm so sorry. <laughs> sorry, it's been a minute since I've been up here preaching for you guys, and I, I just get so jazzed when I get up here, and I think sometimes I just get flustered because I'm so excited. Um, so anyway, let me take a breather. <sighs> Calm down, and now I can just get to preach to you guys. Uh, So this morning, we are in the third week of a series called Homecoming. And in that series, Lindsay has been addressing for us different needs that we find that that happen to be spiritual needs, but that we we often try to fulfill through the means of the world. And so we've, we've talked about the need for significance. We've talked about how different that need for significance, that our desire in our our heart to mean something, how different that looks in the kingdom than it does to the world. Right? Because significance to the world means making a name for yourself. But significance in the kingdom is laying down your life to make a name for Jesus. Right? And last week we talked about security. Do you remember all of those roller coasters or that the slingshot ride, all of those videos of kids just passing out? That was a, a grand time. I love videos like that. They're my favorite YouTube suggestions filled with them, right? We talked about this need for security and how we try to find that and fulfill that in the world, but really the only place that that can be fulfilled is in trust with Jesus in relationship with Christ. And today we're going to talk about a need that we have that maybe is kind of an under-the-surface need. We don't really blatantly talk about it that much, and yet you'll find that our culture is absolutely preoccupied with it. It's our need, our desire for innocence. And you know, you can think to yourself like, I have a need to feel significant. I have a need to feel like I matter. And I definitely have a need to feel secure in my relationships, in my relationship with the Lord even, uh, in my home. But innocence, that's a new one. But then you just turn on the TV and you look at daytime television. I don't know about you guys, but I grew up on Judge Judy. <laughs> I grew up on that sassy lady up on that stand. I'm pretty sure she's not even a real judge, but she's my judge, <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> judge Judy forever, <laughs> right? Uh, or TV shows like CSI, and then they came out with CSI Miami, and like my grandma loved CSI Miami, so that's what we watched. There's also CSI New York, there's uh, Law and Order. There's Law and Order Special Victims Unit, which one of our pastors in the front row is a huge fan of. Uh, drives me bonkers, but whatever. <laughs> do, 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 do. You know what I mean? Yeah. Right? Or we have shows like Sherlock, right? Which is a little more, it's a little different. It's British, so there's that. You know, like, uh, I don't know. <laughs> right? We live in a culture, whether we know it or not, that is obsessed with this idea of innocence. Because all of these shows have to do with who is guilty and who is innocent. 
right? And this is a need. It's, it's a slippery need, I think, because we don't always realize what our need, our desire for innocence will make us do. Okay, but, but I have a story for you um, from my childhood, one of the old relics, as I say, you know, uh, a polished gem. <laughs> I only pull out on rare occasions because it makes me sound weird, okay? Uh, but it's fine, I am weird. Uh, <laughs> when I was a kid, I loved bologna. Okay, and this whole story, I just need to keep, I need you to keep something in the front of your mind, okay? Innocence is at the front of this, like. Our desire for innocence grows so strong in us that even when we're children, it's there, right? I no longer love bologna, I'll tell you that. That's not the story that's going, but I know far too much about bologna now, okay? But as a kid, I loved bologna. I don't know what my deal was. I just loved it. It was like, this is all the same texture and the same color, and it just tastes so good. Yeah, it's kind of sick to think that some of you are shaking your heads like, don't ever talk to me again. I understand. But like, especially the bologna with the little cheese pieces in it, you know what I mean? It was square, the perfect size for your bread. I love, oh my goodness, sign me up. Not anymore. i would throw up, but it's okay. Uh, <laughs> okay, so I love bologna, but I had one weird quirk, um, many weird quirks, to be quite frank with you guys, but one in particular about bologna, um, and that's that I didn't like the edges. You know, like, oh, Kathy's like, I, I'm with you, sister, I get it. Edges of bologna, disgusting. <laughs> okay, so some kids are like, mom, cut the crust off my sandwich. I'm like, mom, cut the edge off my bologna. Like, I will not eat that. Are you kidding me? And I'm not talking about, for those of you who are well-versed in bologna culture, I'm not talking about only the red part that you peel off. I'm talking about, like, what's underneath. I just didn't like it. It was just, like, a different texture than the rest of my processed meat, and I was like, mm, I didn't like that. I, it just felt weird. Okay, so my mom would have to cut off just the edge of the bologna and then I'd be like, yeah, that's fine because it's all the middle piece now. <laughs> I love it. Okay, but one day I was hungry and my mom wasn't around. Uh, and so I went to the fridge because I knew we had a brand spanking new pack of bologna. Okay, and so I went to that fridge, I opened that drawer and I got out that bologna and I feasted. I was like, this is the best day ever. I love bologna. <laughs> Didn't even have to bother with the bread, no mayo, no cheese, no nothing. Just a straight up processed meat. Okay, uh, and it was a great time. And that's the end of my story. Um, it's not. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, it's not the end of my story. Uh, what actually ended up happening is I put the rest of the bologna back, as you do, because I was a civilized young kid, okay? Like, you can't not refrigerate the rest of the bologna. I didn't eat it all. Uh, I wanted to, but I didn't. Um, so I put the rest of it back, and my Aunt Angie came home from work and wanted to make a sandwich. So she got out all of the stuff to make the sandwich. Uh, she put some mayo on her bread, slapped a little cheese slice on there. We had them Kraft American singles, so our processed meat and our processed cheese, that's the kind of family we were. I loved it. Uh, <laughs> and she, she opens the package of bologna. Um, and much like a donut has a hole in the middle, um, she could see straight to the bottom of the package uh, because what I had done, I didn't like the edges, those are gross, you know, like somebody else can eat those. What I had done is I had folded every piece of bologna in half and just taken bites out of the middle um, and I put it back into the bologna container. So from the outside, it looked perfect. When you just looked at the package, all the edges were there. Uh, but on the inside, it was 
quite a different story. Uh, but you know, like I, I could see as she was making her sandwich, she's getting upset. And I came up with this, this, you know, like I started to feel bad. And I was like, okay. And so I went to my Aunt Angie and I promptly confessed to her um, that I had watched my cousin Skylar do it. Every, every piece of bologna, Angie, and I just couldn't stop him. He was an animal. I, I was, I don't know what to do, and so I just didn't. Uh, and I'm, I'm sorry, and, and she knew right away. Um, he, he doesn't do stuff like that. He's two years younger than you, and you can reach into the fridge, and you know how to open a package of bologna. Like, I'm not buying it. Um, and I will tell you that that story ended justly with me getting punished, but I will also tell you a gross fact about my Aunt Angie. She just ate it anyway. <laughs> so now you know a little bit more about me and you know a little bit more about my family. <laughs> oh, sick it. Um, all of that to say that from a very young age, we try to defend our innocence. And we do it in miser terribly miserable ways, right? Like just telling her like, well, my cousin did it. It wasn't me, you know? We do it in some, some ways that don't make a whole lot of sense. Like, oh, we broke mom's favorite wristwatch, so we buried it in the garden, you know? <laughs> we do it in unhealthy ways, you know? Like, well, I'm feeling really sick, but I told my mom I wanted all of that ice cream, so I'm gonna eat it. I'm gonna do it. <laughs> uh, but we try to defend our innocence. From a very young age, we, we learn, this is something I have to protect. I have to be innocent. And, and I think that that comes from the very beginning of time. It comes from one story. But this is the thing about innocence, is that we often don't realize our need for innocence until we're guilty, or until somebody that we know has been wronged. We often don't realize our need for innocence until we are guilty. And a couple of weeks ago, um, Lindsay introduced to you the story of the beginning of time. And what I'm talking about is the Garden of Eden. Um, and I think that this story, the Garden of Eden, the fall of man, illustrates some, some pretty big ways that we try to get away with protecting our innocence. But before we dive into that, I just need you to think, like, what is a lack of innocence? Guilt would be one word for it. That would be the legal word for it, right? If you're not innocent, you're guilty. But what do we know that as? We know that as sin. We know that as the thing that separates us from a relationship with our Father, sin. Right? And we know that when we are trying to cover up our baloney rampage, we will do anything. We will put it back how we found it. We will lie about it in order to protect a relationship, in order to not admit we have done something wrong. So I want, I want to break down for you three major ways that we mess up in the area of sin, where we try to fulfill a need, our need for innocence, our need to be right with our Heavenly Father, we try to fulfill that need through worldly ways. Let's turn with me to Genesis 3, the worst story in Scripture. Oh, just kidding. I actually really like this story. <laughs> Genesis 3, 6 through 7. 
When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. See, the first thing that we do that is a major mess up when it comes to sin is we try to diminish our sins. We try to make them seem less bad. Maybe if I sew some fig leaves together, the Lord won't know that I know that I'm naked. Maybe if I try to rectify the situation first, when the Lord does find out that I ate the fruit, he'll say, well, I mean, you did such a good job covering it up. Who, you know, oh, well, you know. Oh, well, you disobeyed the one command that I gave you. At least you have some figs. I have another story for you. I know, sorry. I have another story for you about kind of how awful a kid I was. Um, and when I was writing this sermon, it dawned on me like, I was kind of the worst. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Uh, don't laugh because then I will cough. Okay. Um, I had a cell phone in middle school. It was my first cell phone. And that cell phone was strictly for purposes of if I was being abducted or murdered, okay? So like only on the way home was I allowed to use it. Only on the way to school was I allowed to use it. I was not supposed to have it out during school hours. I wasn't supposed to be texting my little sixth grade friends. I wasn't supposed to be touching it really for the whole time I was at school. Uh, But one day I just really wanted to play the games on my phone. Um, And so I took it out during recess, but but that recess, it was raining. Um, I dropped it in a puddle, and <laughs> needless to say, it was toast. Uh, and so I just picked it out of the puddle, kind of shook it off, put it back in my backpack. And, and when I got home, I didn't say anything to my dad. You know, I was like, well, I'm going to try to fix it first. <laughs> and then I will say something, because if I can fix it, then it's like nothing happened. If I can make it right, then it's like nothing happened. Then it's like I didn't even mess up. I didn't even break the rule because nothing happened, right? And so I took out my hairdryer, um, and I started blowing the hairdryer on my phone. And it was getting drier, but it also wasn't turning on still. (laughs) And there's a real problem here because when you're trying to be discreet, a hairdryer's probably not the tool you should be using. I'll just throw that out there. Um, And so my dad comes downstairs to my room and he goes, what are you doing? Nothing, dad. Nothing at all. My phone is just fine. Thank you for asking. (laughs) Uh, So what have you been blow drying down here? My hair, my hair, it's not wet. It's even, it's even less wet than it was when I started. <laughs> My phone is A-OK, Dad, I assure you. <laughs> Happy Father's Day, Dad. Um, <laughs> OK, so I tried to fix a problem before I ever went to my dad. I tried to diminish what I had done by making it better. But the problem was that I ended up in more trouble and if I had just brought the stupid phone to him to begin with, I ended up in more trouble for trying to cover it up. I ended up in more trouble for lying to him than if I would have just said, you know what, I took my phone out during recess. That was a bad, I should not have done that bad thing. And, and I dropped it in a puddle. 
<laughs> okay, and so the second one, I'm so sorry, guys. I have been sick, and I can feel a cough, so I'm going to cough. <laughs> sorry. Okay. Uh, the second thing that we do that is a really terrible way to try to handle our sin is that we try to hide it. And this goes hand in hand with the first one, but it is a little different. So Genesis 3, verses 8 through 10. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. See, when I think of this point, I think of all those crime shows that I watch where people ditch the gun and they get out of the state and they change their outfit and they change their clothes or their, their car. Maybe they steal somebody else's license plate. They go to great lengths to hide what has happened. Maybe they even try to clean up, right? It goes hand in hand with that first one. If I just clean it up and if I hide this gun, they will never know it was me. They will never know what happened here. Maybe I can hide it long enough that by the time people remember it, by the time people discover it, they'll forget how horrific a thing I have just done. And maybe that's just me because I've watched too much TV, you know, but, but I just think of myself like, Adam just like tossed the gun over his shoulder. Oh, God! Wow, fancy meeting you here. And God can see the fig leaves, and he knows that Adam was hiding. That question, where are you? That's a heartbreaking question for a father to ask, because he knows. We try to hide our sin. And the third thing is this, we blame our sins on someone else. Genesis 3, 11 through 13, and he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. I don't even really think I need to unpack this one fully for you guys to understand that this is a bad situation but it's one that we fall into to protect our innocence, to protect a relationship with the Lord. It's funny though, because Adam starts off on the wrong foot entirely, if you ask me. He blames God. He says, you know what, Lord, in order to protect my relationship with you, I just wanna let you know you let me down. <laughs> that woman that you gave to me, she, she told me this food was good and I ate it. And so the Lord says, okay, Eve, why did you do that? And she says, well, it wasn't my fault. It was the serpent, right? And it's amazing how this does not work, <laughs> how this absolutely does not soften the Lord's demeanor. And he doesn't say, you know what, Adam? You're so right, buddy. I shouldn't have given you a helper. I let you down on that one. That was, that was my bad. You're not in trouble. You're not in trouble, dude. You, you ate the fruit only because the, the woman asked you to. Right? And he doesn't go to Eve and say, you know, you would be in trouble, but, but you're absolutely right. The serpent deceived you. Uh, and so I guess you're off the hook too. And, 
He doesn't just cast the serpent out of the garden. You see, there's consequence even when we try to blame other people. Even when we try to blame our circumstance. Even when we blame our past. See, at the end of the day, there is only one person that is responsible for your actions. And it's not me. (laughs) It's you. They are all sent out of the garden. Every single one of them. None of these attempts at covering up their sin work, diminishing it, trying to make it better by, by sewing some fig leaves together, trying to solve a problem that they had created, that doesn't work. Doesn't get rid of the fact that they're no longer innocent. Hiding their sin, hiding the fact that they broke the one rule God gave them, doesn't do anything for their innocence. And blaming other people, blaming their situation, blaming their circumstances doesn't fix anything. And I'll tell you what, if it didn't work in the perfect Garden of Eden to blame somebody else for your sin, it's not going to work now. We diminish our sin, we hide our sin, and we blame others for our sin. Those are the three most common ways that we try to fulfill our need for innocence by using worldly tools. And it does not work. It doesn't work. So now, I wanna show you a conversely different story. I wanna show you the one thing that does work to get us back to that place where there is nothing between us and our Father. Turn with me to John 8. John 8, 2 through 11. At dawn, he, Jesus, appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. And the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. And they made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him, but Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. And I'm sure that all of us have heard this story. This story breaks my heart. I can't even imagine being in her shoes. And that's the act of adultery. I haven't committed that in my life, but I've done some pretty wrong things. And I can't imagine being dragged out of my situation, out of my circumstances by the Pharisees and led to the feet of Jesus. What I think will be my death. 
This story makes me angry. It's upsetting. Here she is, caught in the act of sinning. And they want to stone her, which is absolutely the right response, right? And she's thrown at the feet of Jesus. There's a lot going on in this story. But the first thing that I need you to understand is that there is no question about her innocence. She's guilty. She was caught in the act. Okay, and and so the Pharisees are half right. They're half right to bring her to the feet of Jesus, to bring her to the temple courts to be stoned to death. They're half right because the law of Moses does say that. It does say that that is the punishment for adultery. But where they're drawing this from is from Deuteronomy 22. And verse 22 of Deuteronomy 22 says this. If a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, both the man who slept with her and the woman must die. They were half right. They brought her to the feet of Jesus. But where was the other guilty party? Nowhere to be seen. Right? And the, the reason that that is significant is because already they're mincing words. Already they're brewing a trap for Jesus. And this is the thing about this. Nobody said that she was somebody's wife. That is true. Okay, but you can read Deuteronomy 22 if you want to, and it is very explicit. It is very explicit that sexual crimes always have two people responsible. That this crime should have had another party standing there. And I will explain in a minute why this is so important. But the second thing that we have to notice is that Jesus is not concerned with the innocence of the woman before him. She is guilty. That is not a question. It's not debatable. But what he brings up instead is the innocence of the Pharisees, is the innocence of the accusers. And he says, you want me to judge her? Okay, that's fine. I'll play judge. But in order for you to punish her, I want the one of you who is without sin to throw the first stone. Notice his wording. He doesn't say only those without sin can throw stones. He says, the one of you who has no sin, you start. There was not one of them, not one of them, who was able to start. And they all left. And all of that is important, but the most important part of this story is the woman's response to Jesus. See, this is where that first part comes in. Because her response is not to run. Her response is not to hide. In fact, it says she was still standing there. She didn't even shrink herself down to try to protect herself from being stoned. She didn't hide, she didn't run, and she didn't try to justify her sin. You know what else she didn't do? She didn't look at Jesus and say, yeah, I'm guilty, where's the other party? She didn't blame her sin on another person. She didn't blame it on the man she was having an affair with. She didn't blame it on the Pharisees who brought her to the feet of Jesus. She stood ready to take what was coming her way. There is only one response to sin. 
that will ever get us anywhere in our quest to fulfill our need for innocence. One response. And it's, it's repentance. What does Jesus say to this woman? He says, go and leave your life of sin. That is repentance. Go and stop doing what you have been doing. Repentance. From this moment, do something different because it's not working. That's repentance. Repentance is to go. It's to stop diminishing our sin. Stop justifying it. Stop trying to make it better. She knew she couldn't do that and she didn't even try. There's no way that you can make that better. You were caught in the act. Stop trying to diminish your sin. Repentance is to stop hiding our sin. It's to bring it to the light instead. It's to bring it to the feet of Jesus, knowing full well that it was wrong to begin with. And repentance is to stop blaming our sin on someone else. Stop blaming our sin on our past. Stop blaming our sin on our addiction. Stop blaming our sin on that person who hurt me. We have to move on from that. There is only one way that your need for innocence will ever be fulfilled, and it is not in the ways we just talked about. It's in repentance. This whole idea of homecoming is that the more that we lean into Jesus, the closer that our souls get to home. This is a holiness series. The closer that we get to home, the holier we become, the more sanctified. The closer that we get to Jesus, the more that he cleanses, of, cleanses us of those things. The less that we struggle with the same thing time and time again. Homecoming, the more that we lean into Jesus, the closer to home our souls get. The more that we lean in. And that is a choice repentance. You see, we've been dealing with this legal term. Innocence is a very legal term. That's why we use it in the court of law. That's what our whole nation's judiciary system is based on, this idea of innocence. And where there is innocence, there is guilt. Where there is an innocent party, there is a guilty party. Because that's how crime works. That's how sin works. Innocence is a legal term. And Jesus fulfilled that legal term when he died on the cross for your sin. That legal part, that has been fulfilled. But repentance is a spiritual term. Repentance speaks to our spiritual need to be right with our Father. But what we've done is we've treated Jesus like a businessman. Every time we find ourselves at his feet, we say, Jesus, make me clean. And every time he says, you're forgiven, now go and do differently. And we still find ourselves at his feet again. So we want the innocence. We want this need to be fulfilled without ever making the choice to find that fulfillment in Jesus without ever making the choice to walk away from that place, maintaining our innocence. 
walking away from what brought us there to begin with. Repentance is a spiritual term. And it is the only way to fulfill the spiritual need that you have to be innocent. See, because we will never be made innocent by our own hands, never. It is not possible. We will never be made innocent by our own hands. But Jesus made us innocent by his blood. And when he tells us to walk away from the lives that we have been living, we must trust that that is for our best. We must trust that as hard as that initial first step away from our sin is, that we will maintain our innocence the further that we get away from that sin. The further that we are able to walk away, we have to step back into relationship with Jesus. And that's the frustrating part. Because when Jesus is a businessman, we can pay him and be on our way. But when we're dealing with repentance, when we're dealing with a spiritual term, it implies relationship. And it means that we're relying on him not just to give us our innocence back, but to help us to maintain that. How many of you, when you go on a trip, look forward to coming back to work, to working your butt off? Probably not many of us. Panera Bread is not my first dream come true. But my home, my home is a place where I get to just exist. My home is a place where I get to be free, where if I don't want to wear socks, I don't have to. And if I don't want to wear shoes, I don't have to. And if I don't want to wear pants by George, I don't have to. Homecoming is the idea that the more that we lean into Jesus, the closer we are to home. We have to stop trying to make this business. We have to stop working so hard to cover up our sin. Just take it home. That's all that he's asking. So I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes right where you are. Um, And when we talk about repentance, man, there is a whole boatload of stuff that comes up. Because maybe we don't know who Jesus is. Maybe when somebody says repent and trust that the Lord will fulfill you, trust that the Lord will meet your need for innocence, you say to yourself, I don't know how because I don't have a relationship with him. I'll tell you what, it's just as easy as being thrown at his feet and hearing this message and knowing there's nothing that I can do to get my innocence back. There's nothing. I have sinned, I am wrong. Just admitting that at his feet and saying, but you know what, Jesus? I want to walk with you. I want to get closer to home. Jesus, help me. And turning away from your sin, walking away. And it starts with one step. But that one step, that first step is everything because that is a choice. Innocence is not a choice. But that first step in repentance 
is. Your innocence has already been bought, but your relationship with the Lord is a choice. And if today is the first day that you wanna make that step, what I would ask is that you stand. Not so that I can see you, my eyes are closed. But because it is a choice, because it is a choice to stand. And maybe you're here today and you have a relationship with the Lord. But maybe something in this sermon struck you because there is a sin in your life that you have been trying to justify or a sin in your life that you have been trying to hide or a sin in your life that you have been blaming on others, that you have been blaming on your circumstance, on your history. And this message is for you too because this woman, she walked away from that place having been forgiven. And when we find ourselves at the feet of Jesus, that is the message that he sings over us. You are forgiven, now turn and walk away from your life of sin. Stop, leave it at his feet, stop working so hard. This series is homecoming because our hearts can take one step closer to home. And if that's you this morning, I would ask that you also stand because that is a choice. Because it's you making the choice to stand and to say, Jesus, I have messed up for the 19th time or the first. And Lord, I want to walk away from my life of sin. I want to leave it at your feet and do something different. I want to come home. As we worship, Begin to lay your sin at his feet and leave it there. And as we walk out of this building, let those first steps out of it be your first steps into repentance, into leaving your sin, stop making excuses, and going forward in a different direction. God, I thank you for this story in scripture of this woman who was caught and there was absolutely no way she could get out of denying that she had not sinned. There's no way that she could have hidden it. There's no way that she could have blamed another person for it and you would have believed it. But God, despite that, you still said, I forgive you. I do not condemn you, but go and leave your life of sin. Jesus, you always give us instructions that follow these moments where you accept us. And God, I pray that in our relationships with you that you would give us the strength to take that first step away. To take that first step in repentance away from our sin. God, we are desperate to come home. We have been working so hard. God, would you give us rest? 
Lord, we love you. And Jesus, it's in your precious, holy, and forgiving name that we pray these things. Amen.